Hello, this is Mrs. Corin reading section 8.1 and 8.2 from your book. Here are some key questions to think about. What are the main points of the cell theory? How do microscopes work? How do prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells different? Okay, let's begin. What's the smallest part of any living thing that still counts as being alive? Is a leaf alive? How about your big toe? What about a drop of blood? Can we just keep dividing things into smaller and smaller parts? Or is there a point at which what's left is no longer alive? As you will discover, there is such a limit. The smallest living unit of any organism is a cell. The discovery of the cell. Seeing is believing, goes the old saying. It would be hard to find a better example of this than the discovery of the cell. Without the instruments to make them visible, cells remained unknown for most of human history. All of this changed with the dramatic advance in technology, the invention of the microscope. Early microscopes. In the late 1500s, I'm sorry, in the late 1500s, eyeglass makers in Europe discovered that using several glass lens lenses in combination could magnify even the smallest objects. Before long, they had built the first true microscopes from these lenses, opening the door to the study of biology as we know it today. In 1665, Robert Hooke, an Englishman, used an early microscope to look at a non-living, thin slice of cork, a plant material. Under the microscope, cork seemed to be made of thousands of tiny empty chambers, as shown in figure 8.1. Hooke called the chambers cells because they reminded him of a monastery's tiny rooms. That term, cell, is used in biology to this day. In Holland, at the same time, Anton von Leeuwenhoek used a single lens microscope to observe pond water and other things. To his amazement, the microscope revealed a fantastic world of tiny living organisms that seemed to be everywhere, in the water that he and his neighbors drank, and even in his own mouth. The Cell Theory Before long, it became clear that Cells are the basic unit of all living things. In 1838, German botanist Matthias Schlieden concluded that all plants are made of cells. The next year, German biologist Theodor Schwann stated that all animals are made of cells. So these two guys, Schlieden and Schwann, came up with the basis of the cell theory. I remember that it was Theodor Schwann who stated that all animals are made of cells because his last name, Schwann, kind of sounds like a swan, which is an animal. That's how I remember. In 1855, German physician Rudolf Virchow published the idea that new cells can be produced only from the division of existing cells. These discoveries, confirmed by many biologists, are summarized in the cell theory, a fundamental concept of biology. The cell theory states, number one, all living things are made of cells. Number two, 
Cells are the basic units of structure and function in living things. And number three, new cells are produced from existing cells. Exploring the cell. Following in the footsteps of Hook, Virchow, and others, modern biologists still use microscopes to explore the cell. But today's researchers use technology that is more powerful than the pioneers of biology could have ever imagined. Microscopes work by using beams of light or electrons to produce magnified images. Light microscopes. The type of microscope you are probably most familiar with is the compound light microscope. A typical light microscope allows light to pass through a specimen and uses two lenses to form an image. The first lens, called the objective lens, is located just above the specimen. This lens enlarges the image of the specimen. The second lens, called the ocular lens, magnifies this image still further. Okay, so you, the first lens, the objective lens, you're very familiar with. That's what you use in the lab. Remember, we start on the lowest objective lens, the shortest squattish one, and then we move on up. The, uh, uh, the ocular lens is the second lens, and that's the one you're looking through at the end of the tube. Okay, unfortunately, light limits detail of the object or resolution of images in a microscope. Like all forms of radiation, light waves are diffracted or scattered as they pass through the image. Because of this, light microscopes can produce clear images of objects only to a magnification of about a thousand times. Since many living cells are nearly transparent, chemical stains or dyes are used to help make cells and their parts visible. Many of the slides you'll examine your, in your biology laboratory will be stained this way. We're, we're going to do this during the week. We're going to uh, stain onion cells. A powerful variation on these staining techniques uses dye that gives off light of a particular color when viewed under specific wavelengths of light, a property called fluorescence. Fluorescent labels of different colors, shown in figure 8.2, can be attached to certain molecules within the cell. These labels make it possible to locate and even watch molecules move around in a living cell. All right, so to make this make sense, basically you are putting a dye or something specific on your cell that's really only gonna be attracted to say a particular macromolecule. So for example, if you wanted to look very, very closely at the cell membrane, you might use something that would be attracted to lipids. And that way those would be highlighted when you're looking underneath the uh, microscope. All right, let's move on to electron microscopes. Light microscopes can be used to see cells and cell structures as small as one millionth of a meter, certainly pretty small. But what if scientists want to study something smaller than that, such as a virus or a DNA molecule? For that, they need electron microscopes. Instead of using light, electron microscopes use beams of electrons focused by magnetic fields. Electron microscopes offer a much higher resolution than light microscopes. 
Some types of electron microscopes can be used to study cellular structure, and they are they can study structures that are one billionth of a meter in size. So compare that to the light microscopes. Electrons are easily scattered by molecules in the air, which means samples must be placed in a vacuum to be studied with an electron microscope. As a result, researchers must chemically preserve their samples. This means that electron microscopy, all right, I'm having a hard time with this word, microscopy, despite its higher resolution, can be used to examine only non-living cells and tissues. The two major types of electron microscopes are transmission and scanning. Let's talk about both of those. Transmission electron microscopes. These microscopes make it possible to explore cell structures and large protein molecules. Beams of electrons can only pass through thin samples, so cells and tissues must be cut into extremely thin slices before they can be examined. This is the reason that such images often appear, pl appear flat and two-dimensional. Also, I'd like you to know that in cutting these things is, is like a skill, and they use diamond-bladed knives so that they could have the sharpest cut possible. And uh, when I was a college student, they said, you know, you need to be careful with these diamond-bladed knives because you can cut yourself with them and you wouldn't even feel it. And that cut would bleed quite a bit and be potentially pretty dangerous, but you would not feel the knife going into you. That's how fine it is. All right. Scanning electron microscopes. In these microscopes, a pencil-like beam of electrons is scanned over the surface of a specimen. Because the image is formed at the specimen's surface, samples do not have to be cut into thin slices to be seen. The scanning electron microscope produces stunning three-dimensional images of this specimen's surface. All right, so if you are looking at the book, there is figure 8.3 gives you an example of the same sample under a light micrograph, a transmission electron micrograph, and a scanning electron micrograph. So you're able to see it from three points of view. And yeah, the scanning electron micrograph or SEM uh, picture is pretty, pretty impressive. Okay, look at figure 8.3, which shows yeast cells as they look under a light microscope, a transmission electron microscope, and a scanning electron microscope. You may wonder why the cells appear to be different colors in each of the micrographs. A micrograph is a photo of an object seen through a microscope. The colors in light micrographs come from the cells themselves or from stains and dyes used to highlight them. Electron micrographs, however, are actually black and white. Electrons, unlike light, don't come in colors. So scientists often use computer techniques to add false co color to make certain structures stand out. Okay, so when you hear that word false color, it's not a lie. What they're doing is they're highlighting different parts of the object that they're looking at. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see them. In the past decade, new microscopes have been developed that use precise computer-controlled laser beams to scan across samples and gather very high-resolution information. 
These instruments and techniques make it possible to study living cells at a level of detail never possible before, opening up even more opportunities for research. Here's a reading check question. What can you infer? If scientists were studying a structure found on the surface of a yeast, what kind of microscope would they likely use? So looking at the pictures on page 245, um, I think you can come up with the correct answer for that. Okay. Moving on to prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Cells come in an amazing variety of shapes and sizes, some of which are shown in figure 8.4. So figure 8.4 shows us relative sizes of cells. And they're actually, it's a great diagram to look at. I'll probably include this or something like it in one of our lectures. Typical cells range from 5 to 50 micrometers in diameter. The smallest mycoplasma bacteria, which are only 0.2 micrometers across, are so small they are difficult to see with even the best light microscope. In contrast, the giant amoeba Chaos Chaos, that's its name, that's great, Chaos Chaos, can be 1,000 micrometers or one millimeter in diameter, large enough to see with an unaided eye as a tiny speck in pond water. So just looking at it, you wouldn't even need a, a microscope. You would be able to see it moving around. Despite their differences, all cells at some point in their lives contain DNA, the molecule that carries biological information. In addition, all cells are surrounded by a thin, flexible barrier called a cell membrane. The cell membrane is sometimes called the plasma membrane, because many cells in the body are in direct contact with the fluid portion of the blood, the plasma. There are other similarities as well, as you will learn in the next lesson. Okay, those are two big ones though. All cells have a cell membrane and they have DNA. Cells fall into two broad categories, depending on whether or not they contain a nucleus. The nucleus, the plural of which would be nuclei, is a large membrane-enclosed structure that contains genetic material in the form of DNA. So you remember that when we did Journey to the Center of the Cell, you had to travel to the nucleus to see the DNA. The DNA is not going to leave that nucleus. We had to go to the nucleus, see the DNA, and make a copy of it using RNA. DNA controls many of the cell's activities. Eukaryotes are cells that enclose their DNA and nuclei. Okay, so it's all wrapped up. In contrast, prokaryotes are cells that do not enclose DNA and nuclei. Now, um, eukaryotes, something good to remember is you are a eukaryote. So eukaryotes, um, such as yourself, you have DNA enclosed in nuclei in each of your cells. Now, prokaryotes, that word pro can kind of rhyme with no, they do not have a cell. I mean, I'm sorry, they do not have a nucleus. No nucleus, prokaryote. Now, if you know something about these words in general, pro does mean 
before and carry that K-A-R-Y means egg. So I don't know. We could do an entomological study of the words, but it just helps to remember that pro means rhymes with no, no nucleus. Ah, figure 8.5 shows a typical prokaryotic cell and two typical eukaryotic cells. So animal cells are eukaryotic and so are plant cells. Your most common, ex common example of a prokaryotic cell is like a bacteria. Prokaryotic cells are generally smaller and simpler when compared with eukaryotic cells, although there are many exceptions to this rule. The organism we commonly call bacteria are prokaryotes. Prokaryotic cells do not enclose their genetic material within a nucleus. So that their genetic material, the DNA, is just kind of floating around on the inside. Despite their simplicity, prokaryotes carry out every activity associated with living things. They grow, reproduce, and respond to the environment. Prokaryotes perform very important roles in the environment. In fact, the very first photosynthetic organisms to appear on Earth nearly 3 billion years ago were cyanobacteria. The oxygen these prokaryotes released into the atmosphere forever changed Earth's environment, making it possible for plant and animal life as we know it. So we owe a lot to prokaryotes. Eukaryotes. Eukaryotic cells are generally larger and more complex than prokaryotic cells. Most eukaryotic cells contain dozens of structures and internal membranes, and many are highly specialized. Remember, we call these structures and um, some of these internal membranes, we call them organelles. In eukaryotic cells, the nucleus separates the genetic material from the rest of the cell. Eukaryotes display great variety. Some, like the ones commonly called protists, live solitary lives as unicellular organisms. So the lab we did recently, we were observing protists mostly. They are um, unicellular organisms. Others form large multicellular organisms, plants, animals, and fungi. In multicellular organisms, cells are specialized for specific tasks, such as support, communication, movement, or the production of proteins or other cell products. As a general rule, the cells of multicellular organisms cannot survive independently. They work together to complete the tasks of life. So you are a eukaryotic multicellular organism. Your cells are specialized. They don't really live on their own. So as a general rule, if you pluck like a cell off your skin, even though it was living and working in, to create you, it's not going to survive ind individually. It's going to be dead once it kind of flakes off your body. And that's true for your blood, all your little cells. All right. So some questions from 8.1 that you might want to think about. How did Hooke's work contribute to the cell theory? What does it mean if a micrograph is false colored? What is the defining characteristic of eukaryotic cells? Which types of organisms have eukaryotic cells? 
Okay, we're gonna move on to 8.2, cell structure. A eukaryotic cell is a complex and busy place. But if you look closely at eukaryotic cells, patterns begin to emerge. For example, it's easy to divide the cell into two major parts, the nucleus and the cytoplasm. The cytoplasm is the portion of the cell outside the nucleus. Both the nucleus and the cytoplasm work together in the business of life. The interior of a prokaryotic cell, which lacks a nucleus, is also referred to as the cytoplasm. In our discussion of cell structure, we will consider each major component of plant and animal eukaryotic cells, some of which are also found in prokaryotic cells, one by one. Because many of these structures act like specialized organs, they are known as organelles, literally little organs. Understanding what each organelle does helps us to understand the cell as a whole. A summary of cell structures and functions can be found at the end of this lesson. So this is a typical thing that's done where you compare a cell to a factory. In many respects, the eukaryotic cell is much like a living version of a modern factory as shown in figure 8.6. The different organelles of the cell can be compared to the specialized machines and assembly lines of a factory. In addition, cell parts like people and machines and factories follow instructions and produce products. As I read about the organization of the cell, you'll find many places in which the comparison works so well that it will help you understand how cells function. The nucleus. In the same way that the main office controls a large factory, the nucleus is the control center of the cell. The nucleus contains nearly all the cell's DNA and with it, the coded instructions for making proteins and other important molecules. Only eukaryotic cells have a nucleus. In prokaryotic cells, DNA is found in the cytoplasm. The nucleus, shown in figure 8.7, 8 is surrounded by a nuclear envelope composed of two membranes. The nuclear envelope is dotted with thousands of nuclear pores, which allow material to move into and out of the nucleus. Like messages, instructions, and blueprints moving in and out of the factory's main office, a steady stream of proteins, the nucleic acid RNA, and other molecules move through the nuclear pores to and from the rest of the cell. Okay, you need to remember though, the DNA stays in the nucleus. It's like the blueprints that never leave the office. We only can make copies of it to bring it out into the cytoplasm. Chromosomes, which carry the cell's genetic information are also found in the nucleus. Most of the time, the thread-like chromosomes are spread throughout the nucleus in the form of chromatin, a complex of DNA bound to proteins. When a cell divides, its chromosomes condense and can be seen under a microscope. Most nuclei also contain a small dense region known as the nucleolus, where the assembly of ribosomes begins. Organelles that build proteins. Life is a dynamic process and living things are always at work synthesizing new molecules. 
because proteins carry out so many of the essential functions of living things, including the synthesis of other macromolecules such as lipids and carbohydrates, a big part of the cell is devoted to their production and dis distribution. The process of making proteins is summarized in figure 8.8. So I'm going to read some of the words from figure 8.8. .8. Number one, proteins are assembled on ribosomes. Number two, proteins targeted for export to the cell membrane or to specialized locations within the cell complete their assembly on ribosomes bound to the rough endoplasmic reticulum. Remember the rough endoplasmic endoplasmic reticulum is studded with these ribosomes. That's why it's called rough. Number three, newly assembled proteins are carried from the rough endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus in vesicles. So those are like the little pods carrying um, those newly assembled proteins. Number four, the Golgi apparatus further modifies proteins before sorting and packaging them into membrane-bound vesicles. Number five, vesicles from the Golgi apparatus are shipped to their final destination in or out of the cell. Okay. Endoplasmic reticulum. All right, let me make sure I'm here. Oh no. Sorry, let's back up. Ribosomes. One of the most important jobs carried out in the cellular factory is making ribosomes. Proteins are assembled on ribosomes. Ribosomes are small particles of RNA and protein found throughout the cytoplasm in both eukaryotes and prokaryotes. Ribosomes produce proteins by following coded instructions that come from DNA. Each ribosome, in its own way, is like a small machine in a factory, churning out proteins on orders that come from its DNA boss. Cells that are especially active in protein synthesis often contain large numbers of ribosomes. So you can tell, even just looking at a cell, if there's a ton of ribosomes in it, then it's going to be active in protein synthesis. Endoplasmic reticulum. Eukaryotic cells contain an internal membrane system known as the endoplasmic reticulum, or ER. The endoplasmic reticulum is where lipids, including those needed for the cell membrane, are synthesized, along with proteins and other materials that are exported from the cell. The portion of the ER involved in the synthesis of proteins is called rough endoplasmic reticulum, or rough ER. It is given this name because of the ribosomes found on its surface. Newly made proteins leave these ribosomes and enter the rough ER where they may be chemically modified. Proteins made on the rough ER include those that will be released or secreted from the cell. Many membrane proteins and proteins designated for other specialized locations within the cell. Rough ER is abundant in cells that produce large amounts of protein for export. Other cellular proteins are made on free ribosomes, which are not attached to membranes. The other portion of the ER is known as smooth endoplasmic reticulum, smooth ER, because ribosomes are not found on its surface. In many cells, the smooth ER contains collections of enzymes that perform specialized tasks, 
including the synthesis of lipids and the detoxification of drugs. Smooth ER also plays an important role in the synthesis of carbohydrates. Golgi apparatus. In eukaryotic cells, proteins produced in the rough ER move next into an organelle called the Golgi apparatus. So this might help you to picture in your head what's happening to these proteins. Okay, so they are assembled in the rough ER and then move on to the Golgi apparatus. The Golgi apparatus appears as a stack of flattened membranes. As proteins leave the rough ER, molecular address tags get them to the right destination. As these tags are read by the cells, the proteins are bundled into tiny membrane enclosed structures called vesicles that bud from the ER and carry the proteins to the Golgi apparatus. The Golgi apparatus modifies, sorts, and packages proteins and other materials from the endoplasmic reticulum for storage in the cell or release from the cell. The Golgi apparatus is somewhat like a customization shop where the finishing touches are put on proteins before they can leave the factory. From the Golgi apparatus, proteins are shipped to their final destinations inside or outside the cell. Organelles that store, clean up, and support. Cells have many functions to perform other than building and transporting proteins. Structures such as vacuoles, vesicles, lysosomes, and the cytoskeleton represent the cellular factory storage space, cleanup crew, and support structures. Okay, so we're getting into the nuts and bolts of the cell. Vacuoles and vesicles. Every factory needs a place to store things, and so does every cell. Many cells contain vacuoles, which are large sac-like membrane-enclosed structures. Vacuoles store materials like water, salts, proteins, and carbohydrates. In many plant cells, there is a single large central vacuole filled with liquid. The pressure of the central vacuole in these cells increases their rigidity, making it possible for plants to support heavy structures such as leaves and flowers. Figure 8.9 shows a typical plant cell's central vacuole. We're actually gonna be looking at a central vacuole inside a plant cell in the lab. Vacuoles are found in many eukaryotic cells. The paramecium in figure 8.9 contains an organelle called a contractile vacuole, which pumps excess water out of the cell. I hope you remember this when we were trying to save Fred the paramecium and we were counting how many times his contractile vesicle had to contract and um, get water out of the cell when it was put in a hypotonic situation. In addition, nearly all eukaryotic cells contain smaller membrane-enclosed membrane structures called vesicles. Vesicles store and move materials between cell organelles, as well as to and from the cell's surface. Lysosomes. Even the neatest, cleanest factory needs a cleanup crew, and that's where lysosomes come in. Lysosomes are small organelles filled with enzymes. Lysosomes break down lipids, carbohydrates, and proteins into small molecules that can be used by the rest of the cell. They are also involved in breaking down organelles that have outlived their usefulness. 
Lysosomes perform the vital function of removing junk that might otherwise accumulate and clutter up the cell. A number of rare but serious human diseases can be traced to lysosomes that fail to function properly. Biologists once thought that only animal cells contained lysosomes, but it is now clear that a few types of plant cells contain them as well. So many of you suggested that for my game, The Journey to the Center of the Cell, that I include lysosomes chasing you around as you try and uh, do what you need to do inside the cell. It's a great idea. Moving on to the cytoskeleton. A factory building is supported by steel or cement beams and by columns that hold up its walls and roof. Eukaryotic cells are given their shape and internal organization by a network of protein filaments known as the cytoskeleton. Certain parts of the cytoskeleton also help transport materials between different parts of the cell, much like the conveyor belts that carry materials from one part of a factory to another. Cytoskeletal components may also be involved in moving the entire cell, as in cell flagella and cilia. The cytoskeleton helps the cell maintain its shape and is also involved in its movement. So that's something to remember. The cytoskeleton helps the cell maintain its shape and is also involved in movement. Fluorescence imaging, as seen in 8.10, clearly shows the complexity of the cell's cytoskeletal network. Microfilaments in the pale purple and microtubules, yellow, are two of the principal protein filaments that make up the cytoskeleton. Microfilaments. Microfilaments are thread-like structures made of a protein called actin. They form extensive networks in some cells and produce a tough, flexible framework that supports the cell. Microfilaments also help the cell move. Microfilament assembly and disassembly are responsible for the cytoplasmic movements that allow amoebas and other cells to crawl along surfaces. Microtubules. All right, just to remind you what's going on here, we're talking about two aspects of the cytoskeleton. The first one is microfilaments, and the second one I'm going to read about are microtubules. These are hollow, microtubules are hollow structures made up of proteins called tubulins. In many cells, they play a critical role in maintaining the cell shape. Microtubules are also important in cell division, where they form a structure known as the meiotic spindle, which helps to separate chromosomes. In animal cells, organelles called centrioles are also, are also formed from tubulins. Centrioles are located near the nucleus and help organize cell division. Centrioles are not found in plant cells. Okay, as far as the cytoskeleton, we will be talking about centrioles um, and when we talk about meiosis. I'm sorry, mitosis. Microtubules also help build projections from the cell surface known as cilia singular cilium, and flagella, singular flagellum. These enable cells to swim rapidly through liquid. The microtubules in cilia and flagella are arranged in a 9 plus 2 pattern as shown in figure 8.11. It would be worth looking at this. We're not going to talk too much about the 9 plus 2 pattern. 
Small cross bridges between the microtubules and these organelles use chemical energy to pull in or slide along the microtubules, producing controlled movements. All right, this next section is very important. It's going to lead into our next unit as well. Organelles that capture and release energy. All living things require a source of energy. That makes energy conversion one of the most important processes in the cell. Factories are hooked up to the local power company, but how do cells get their energy? Most cells are powered by food molecules that are built using energy that ultimately came from sunlight. Chloroplasts. Plants and some other organisms contain chloroplasts. Chloroplasts are biological equivalents of solar power plants. Chloroplasts capture the energy from sunlight and convert it into chemical energy stored in food during photosynthesis. Two membranes surround chloroplasts. Inside the organelle are large stacks of other membranes which contain the green pigment chlorophyll. Okay, so that's chloroplasts are one of our organelles that capture and release energy. So the next one we're going to talk about is mitochondria. Mitochondria. Nearly all eukaryotic cells, including plants, contain mitochondria. Mitochondria are the power plants of the cell. Mitochondria convert the chemical energy stored in food molecules into compounds that are more convenient for the cell to use. So this is interesting. We need chloroplasts to create the food and we need mitochondria to break it down again. Like chloroplasts, two membranes, an outer membrane and an inner membrane, enclose mitochondria. The inner membrane is folded up inside the organelle as shown in figure 8.12. .8 One of the most interesting aspects of mitochondria is the way in which they are inherited. In humans, nearly all or nearly all of our mitochondria originate from the cytoplasm of the ovum or egg cell. This means that when your relatives are discussing which side of the family should take credit for your best characteristics, you can tell them that you got your mitochondria from mom. Another interesting point, chloroplasts and mitochondria contain some of their own genetic information in the form of small DNA molecules. This observation led biologist Lynn Margulis, shown in figure 8.13, to suggest that both organelles are descended from prokaryotic cells that once live independently. Her idea, known as the endosymbiotic theory, is that ancient bacteria and photosynthetic cyanobacteria took up residence inside the earliest eukaryotes. That means that both chloroplasts and our own mitochondria owe their existence to the mutualistic establishment relationship established between these cells more than a billion years ago. It also means that genetic changes in human mitochondria can affect the health of our cells and our bodies. Now, if you read the case study at the beginning of this chapter, it references um, the LHON disorder um, and how it's tied to the mitochondrial DNA. All right, the last part of this is cellular boundaries. 
A working factory needs walls and a roof to protect it from the environment outside and also to serve as a barrier that keeps its products safe and secure until they're ready to be shipped out. Cells have similar needs and they meet them in a similar way. As you have learned, all cells are surrounded by a barrier known as the cell membrane. Many cells, including prokaryotes, also produce a strong supporting layer around the membrane known as the cell wall. Many organisms have cell walls that lie just outside their cell membranes. The main function of the cell wall is to support, shape, and protect the cell. Most prokaryotes and many eukaryotes, including plants and fungi, have cell walls, although animal cells do not. Okay, think about that for a second. Animal cells, your cells, do not have a cell wall. Most cell walls are porous enough to allow water, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and other substances to pass through easily. Cell walls provide much of the strength needed for plants to stand against the force of gravity. In trees and other large plants, nearly all of the tissue we call wood is made of cell walls. The cellulose fiber used for paper, as well as for lumber used for building, comes from these walls. So if you are reading these words from a sheet of paper in a book resting on a wooden desk, you've got cell walls all around you. Cell membranes. All cells contain cell membranes, generally made of a double-layered sheet called a lipid bilayer, as shown in figure 8.14. The lipid bilayer gives cell membranes a flexible, a flexible structure that forms a strong barrier between the cell and its surroundings. The cell membrane regulates what enters and leaves the cell and also protects and supports the cell. The properties of lipids. The layered structures of cell membranes reflect the chemical properties of the lipids that make them up. You may recall that many lipids have oily fatty acid chains attached to chemical groups that interact strongly with water. In the language of a chemist, the fatty acid portions of this kind of lipid are hydrophobic or water-hating while the opposite end of the molecule is hydrophilic or water-loving. When these lipids, which are common in cell membranes, are mixed with water, their hydrophobic fatty acid tails cluster together while their hydrophilic heads are attracted to water. A lipid bilayer is the result. As you can see in figure 8.14, the head groups of lipids are exposed on both sides of the membrane, while the fatty acid tails form an oily layer inside the membrane that keeps the water from passing across it. Okay, we saw a, like a video of that happening, of the water molecules basically forming the phospholipid bilayer. Although many substances can cross cell membranes, some are too large or too strongly charged to cross the lipid bilayer. If a substance is able to cross the membrane, the membrane is said to be permeable to it. A membrane is impermeable to substances that cannot pass across it. Some cell membranes are selective, I'm sorry, most cell membranes are selectively permeable, meaning that some substances can pass across them and others cannot. Selectively permeable membranes are also called semi-permeable membranes.
the fluid mosaic model. Protein molecules are embedded in the lipid bilayer of most cell membranes. Carbohydrate molecules are attached to many of these proteins. Because the proteins embedded in the lipid bilayer can move around and float among the lipids, and because so many different kinds of molecules make up the cell membrane, scientists describe the cell membrane as a fluid mosaic. A mosaic is a kind of art that involves putting bits and pieces of different colors and materials together. Some of these proteins from channels form channels and pumps that help to move material across the cell membrane. Many of the carbohydrate molecules act as chemical identification cards, allowing individual cells to identify one another. Some proteins attach directly to the cytoskeleton, enabling cells to respond to their environment by using their membranes to help move or change shape. That's the end of that section. You're going to have to go to um, another podcast, which will also be in the, um, in the assignment to listen to 8.3 and 8.4. Thank you.